Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Real Talks. I'm David Steele, along with my co-host, Laura Orison. Today, we're going to do a blast from the past, and we're going to be talking about films that are 10, 20, 30, and 40 years old. Now, if you like what you hear, don't forget to follow us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We are on Spotify, iHeart, SoundCloud, and much, much more. You can find me on Twitter at Wannabe Rounder and on Instagram at DCaduto. Where can they find you, Laura? I'm also on LinkedIn and on Instagram at Eloa Orazen. You can find me there, Elora Zen, all together. I, I'm, not, I'm not good with her name, forgive me. <laughs> anyway, so let's, we, we're going to be doing a follow up episode from the week that was but tomorrow, but. Today, we're going to be talking about our favorite movies from the past. So, as I said, 10, 20, 30, and 40 years ago. So, what we're going to do is we're going to count backwards. We're going to start with films that are 40 years old. And I will let you begin. What was your pick for your favorite movie that came out 40 years ago? Well, 1982 was a very good year, I guess. Some good batches. But I have to say that E.T., holds a special place in my heart. Steven Spielberg E.T. I think was a classic. I think it translates to any, and I'm not just talking about language. Of course, we have subtitles all over, but I feel like it's a, it's a movie that we can all connect. There's not really a cultural barrier for that. And, and it's a timeless piece, right? I think no one can possibly imagine an E.T. very different from what Spielberg introduced to us. So... I feel like it definitely changed the mindset towards that. So it is definitely my pick for a movie turning 40 this year. How about you? Yeah. So I went a little different and I went with Poltergeist. Poltergeist, I'm not usually a horror type of person. I believe recently they just, or they're going to be coming out with a remake, but Poltergeist back in 1982, there wasn't a lot of, that was really one of the more, if you will, psychological thriller type of horror movies. And it was really, it was, it was scary. It was a really scary movie for that time. I mean, today it would be pretty tame. But back then, that was a really scary movie. Yeah, it just, it made you think every time you watch TV that, you know, I always thought as a kid that every time I saw snow, like something would jump out at me and scare me because of that movie. So I was just, it was a, it was a fun movie. I mean, I know that they had some sequels that obviously weren't as good, but you know, for me, for me, definitely it was Poltergeist. I thought that was. Both of them have something in common. They have Steven Spielberg on their, their, their list. Spielberg was involved with Poltergeist. He wrote Poltergeist. Wow. See, I I know all this stuff. And you just, I had no idea. Yeah. I, and that's probably why it was so good. Yeah, he directed E.T., but he wrote Poltergeist, who was actually directed by Toby Hopper, who is a legend when it comes about horror movie, right? So he did a lot, a lot of his work is... is it's based on those thrillers, let's put it this way, those that, that get you, you know, biting your nails and you don't know what's going to be next and you can jump out of your... Well, now that I'm even thinking about it, 
now that you make mention of that, I'm thinking of Jaws. I mean, it, I mean, it's the shark and the water, but that was the whole thing about Jaws in 1975. Is it was a music. It was you never saw this. I mean, you saw the shark probably two thirds of the way through the film, but the anticipation of the music and never seeing the shark, you go. Oh. So, yeah, that's a that's really an interest. Now that you bring that up, it's a really interesting point. I had never even considered that. Yeah. So. Very good. Moving on. So I'm going to talk about the one that was in 30 years ago. So we're talking about 1992. And I think, I can't believe it's 30 years old, but one of the better movies. And that was A Few Good Men. Rob Reiner. Even the first five minutes of this movie was, I mean, with the Marines doing the the drill, unbelievable. And, And you got the Immediately, you got the understanding that this was going to be a drama. Really, really good drama. Huge cast. And everybody knows Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, James Pollock, Kiefer Sutherland. A very young Cuba Gooding Jr. makes an appearance. And, of course, Jack Nicholson as Colonel Jessup. So, it was a huge movie back then. And I remember where I was, actually... When I first heard that line, you can't handle the truth. I was actually in it. Now, truth be told, I never saw this in the theater, but I was in a Hollywood video and they were actually playing this as one of the new releases. And that sequence actually got my attention. And even all of these years later, I still remember that. And so Nicholson was actually up for Best Supporting Officer and... I still think, to even to this day, he kind of got robbed. Uh, Gene Hackman ended up winning for Unforgiven, his second Oscar. I think, personally speaking, and I'd like to hear your thoughts, I think that the reason why Nicholson didn't win, because I saw both movies, and I'm sure you have too, I think that the reason why he didn't win that year is because he wasn't in it enough. I think he was only in it maybe a total of 11 minutes. Whereas Hackman was the antagonist. I agree. And he was going up right against Clint Eastwood, and it was just, he went toe-to-toe with him. What do you think? I think, I agree with you. I think he wasn't there enough. I mean, although he was very impactful, he was very meaningful. Yes. Well. No, but yeah, I agree. Maybe it wasn't enough. And we are used to see Oscars going for someone that, you know, that is on the screen for a longer period of time, for sure. You know, it's like we said with, um, I know it's a different case, but when we're talking about her and that Scarlett Johansson couldn't actually be nominated because she wasn't on screen, right? So she was not right. even nominated for that. So I can't imagine why they wouldn't, they would not give an Oscar to someone who wasn't long enough on camera as well, for sure. Yeah. I heard something once and, and actually made really good sense. And they said that, the character fits the story. The story doesn't fit the character. And I think when that's a perfect example of if Jessup had been on screen for 30 or 45 minutes, if you had seen a lot of him, I think it would have diminished the veracity of the performance. I mean, you really only see that him in three scenes. You see him in the beginning when he's talking with Kendrick and this other officer 
and then you see him in the lunch scene when he, you know I sit 300 miles away from 5,000 Cubans that want to you know I that want to kill me in that scene with Tom Cruise and then you don't see him until the end I think if he had been on screen for 20 or 30 or a good amount of time I think it would have diminished the role and especially the end scene and I think that was a concerted decision by Rob Reiner he wanted to make the audience wait he wanted a showdown between Kathy and Jessup because as you know for everybody that's seen the movie it's been out for 30 years spoiler alert but you know he, he makes you know Kathy look like an idiot and so and he was a narcissist and he basically caught Jessup and I think that's how he ended up you know finding him guilty in the end but regardless it was an incredible incredible movie Oscar nominations all the way around and it was up for best picture and as I said Nicholson was up for best supporting actor just a really powerful powerful film so now we're now we're getting a little closer and closer what 20 years ago so now we're talking about 2002 I haven't said my 30 year old one oh I'm sorry see I am just jumping right ahead forgive me what was the one you chose at 30 Reservoir Dog Quentin Tarantino oh my Reboot, directing really that's been out 30 years yeah he was 29 at the time when he released this movie it was kind of a low budget one it was what 1.7 million dollars something like this it wasn't even 2 million he worked hard to get it and you know the reason why I'm choosing that is because I feel like indie movies at that time wasn't a thing I, I can understand that Reservoir Dog would be a very popular movie today But to make it popular back at that time, it's something to applaud Tarantino for. And I think the, the one thing that I really like about Tarantino is like, you might like him or hate him, but he's consistent. He's coherent, you know? It makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. He's never off tone of what he promises you. So once you understand what Quentin Tarantino is all about, You can close your eyes and just go if that's your type of movie and type of director. So I think Reservoir Dog was a beautiful debut for Tarantino yeah. for sure. And that's 30 years. So that's my 2022, uh, 1992, yeah. I'm sorry, uh, pick. I can't believe that's even... I mean, I've, I love Reservoir Dogs. I mean, yeah. now to say I'm a huge fan, I, I can quote Pulp Fiction all day long. Yeah. Reservoir Dogs is one of his forgotten and really as you said put him on the map yeah. low budget film that is and really when his next the success of that and the next the next film in, in Pulp Fiction and whatnot, he just multiple Oscar winner and he's taken off from there yeah I, I and once again he, I don't really I mean now that I'm thinking about it I don't really think that he introduced a whole different kind of violence Yeah. It was more visceral. I mean, all you have to do is think about the uh, torture scene with the cop. And, you know, it just... Yeah, yeah. I, th I think Quentin Tarantino is quite raw sometimes, you know? It's like... And I like that. And I feel like Reservoir Dog is one of those. It's like, it's very uh, honest. Not sugar-coated in any way, for sure. 
that's not Tarantino's style. And wow, 30 years now. So we should do a whole podcast with him. 30 years since he started, yeah. since he started directing, for sure. Yeah, that's that's a great pick. Okay, now we'll move to 20 years. Wow, we're going to go to 20 now, now we Now we go to 2002. And I this is my film. It's probably one of, I won't say probably, easily one of the top five films of all time. I mean, it has to be trained here. Denzel Washington, Ethan Hawke, uh, it just the performance he put in was, I mean, obviously he won the Oscar, as he should have. I mean, the script was incredible. Let's not, and his portrayal as Alonzo Harris was that of, it was so believable and it was so raw and it was so visceral and it was so incredible. And he made you scared of him. And, you know, time after time after time. And... You know that I can just thinking about that scene in the um, the car when he's talking about you know after he kills Sandman and he says of course he sets up the whole thing and he has the uh, the rookie smoke the drugs and all that and he says have you been planning this all day he says no I've been planning it all week the simple fact is he was cold calculated precise. And it just, yeah, Training Day for me is one of my top five movies of all time. And I can't believe that's turning 20. And that's one of those movies that no matter where it is, if I'm flipping through the channels and I see Training Day, I'll watch it. Edited run it. It's that good. So that's, that's my pick for 20, 20 years ago now. Let's what so I have a hard time choosing for that for that year because two thousand well, Yeah, there are two that I think are very important and that I cannot choose one over the other and I'll tell you why. So the first one would be City of God, which is a Brazilian movie that put the Brazilian cinema in a map of the world, I believe. It's one of the movies, you know, like whenever I'm here in the U.S. and people talk to me like, oh my God, is City of God for real? And, you know, like, this is insane. And I've watched that movie and I loved it. And it's so raw and it's so sad and it's so scary and all of this. So I feel like City of God is really important because it broke the barrier of, um, of Hollywood movies. So it was indicated for many Oscars. And, and aside from being a masterpiece, for sure, it's also important to me for very personal reasons i'm really good friends with the with one of the with the photography directors so cinematographer cesar charloni who was nominated for the oscar for his work in the city of god so that's really important to me i think it's a great movie and in brazil we're incredibly proud of that you know the success he created the you know the whole talks that started from there it paved the way for other titles for sure and another one that i think it's really important to me it's bowling for columbine that's the bowling for columbine. 
Yes. That's the title important That's to me. That film. Yeah, it's a, it's a documentary, yeah. you know, Michael Moore documentary. And it was important because, you know, like, different than here, you guys, whenever you guys want to go to college, you have to take it. What is the name? SAT? Yeah, yes. So similar to that, you also have to take a test in Brazil. But for each university, there's one test. Okay, so here is a general one in Brazil. Each university has its own test. There was this one university that I wanted the most in Brazil, and it's very specialized in journalism. So it's the oldest uh, journalism school in the whole Latin America and South America. So it's a kind of a prestigious one. And so whenever you take those tests, they say, these are the books that you have to read. For that college, like here are the books that you have to read and here are the movies that you have to see. And Bowling for Columbine was one of them. So I remember that. Like, I remember that I watched because of that. I was like, I wanted to watch in the first place. But I had to watch because I wanted to get into that school, which I did, by the way. Spoiler alert, I graduated from that one. But it was good. I feel like it's one of those documentaries that... It, like, I think Michael Moore could prove that documentaries doesn't, does not mean that it's boring. Right now, we know there's so many great entertaining documentaries. But I think Bowling for Columbine is one of those. And it's actually very interesting t until this day. So it's 20 years old, but it's still very applicable to American society and its obsessions with guns, for instance. So yeah. if you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's a great documentary and it might present you some arguments that, uh, you know, some, some arguments that you haven't thought before, you know. So it's a good... A place to start a great conversations, maybe with friends and families too, about Americans' obsessions with guns, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, we still have that, and I'm going to call it what it is, an epidemic, gun epidemic today. Oh, yeah. Without getting too political and whatever else, we still have that ep epidemic with guns today. Whether it's accidental shootings, whether it's mass shootings, whether it's, you know, NRA, you know, however, wherever you fall in the spectrum, we still have that problem with firearms today. We do. And I think that I definitely so felt, yeah. That movie, real in documentary, really puts in perspective how firearms, you know, I mean, we're lucky to even have that right. There are some countries in this world. I don't even have that right. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think that's that's a really good, that's another fantastic, you're, you're just coming up with these gems yeah, no, today. This is a really good one. And I think it was Michael Moore's, like, in my opinion, it was his biggest documentary. I don't think he could top that to this day. I haven't, I haven't seen anything from Michael Moore that was better than Balling for Calling By. Yeah, so that's probably, that was probably his master class then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know. He's still so, for sure. So we are now at the last one. Ten years ago. 2012. I'll let you Okay. Go so ahead. It's so many to choose from. So many good ones to choose from, but go ahead. Yeah, I mean for me to 2012 actually wasn't the best year for movies in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But I do have to say that I really enjoyed the perks of being a wallflower. I feel like still to this day, people, you know, quote that movie and 
And I like that it's one of those kind of teenage movies, you know, like, but it's not really teenage, that it's... Coming of age movie. Coming of age movie. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, it's something, it's like, it's light enough for everyone to watch at any point. So I like movies that are like that as well. You know, like, if you watch, like, like we said, Bowling for Columbine, you cannot go for a coffee. Like, you're going to be a little shocked or a little bit shaking afterward, right? But I feel like if you go for the perks of being a wildflower, you, you're going to feel good about it. And, you, and you're going to give some thoughts about your relationships and your friendships. So I think it was great. And it was a debut, at, you know, Ezra Miller, who is a, a, a terrific actor, which, by the way, I think is going a little cuckoo from what I've been reading. Yes. Yeah, so this is so, yeah, in case you haven't. So this will be touching upon this tomorrow. Yeah. But from what I understand, I guess he threatened a couple. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's, he's been in trouble with the law. A few quite times. A, bit. a few times. And so now he's he's in some hot water, and who knows if he's even going to get work again. I feel like yeah. And so, which is I mean, insane. We, he was had a really it. good, yeah, really good actor, and yeah, he did so. a great job on that movie. So, um, you know, he presented. It was a fresh movie, in my opinion, and it's still, you know, like. Because there was there wasn't this pretensions to say okay this is gonna be nominated for the Oscar it wasn't a pretentious movie it was just like okay we're gonna release that and honestly I think it was more impactful than people assume so I think it's a good one so that's my pick yeah. well 2012 nice so I have a couple and I was I'm kind of torn on this well so I'm going I'm going a different route but made history for a couple of reasons. The first one, so there were three, but I'm not going to do all three. The, the one that really stood out, and I've watched it since, and I've heard about it since, and actually was not as good as the middle one, was The Dark Knight Rises. The Dark Knight Rises, I mean, everybody. So The Dark Knight was voted the best film of the 2000s, hands down. Everybody said, what is Nolan going to do next? How does he talk this? Well, opening sequence you have with the, the plane. And by the way, that was all practical. There was a little CGI in there, but it was all practical. There were actual people hanging off the, the plane. And that was Tom Hardy hanging off, you know. So, but it was just, it was a grand conclusion. I mean, even, you know. The scene with the football field, that was completely CGI or whatever. But it was, you really didn't know if Batman was going to come all the way back because he had never faced a adversary like Bane and where he was. And that was, now, not the best Christopher Nolan movie, but definitely in the conversation. I thought it was a good ending film for that trilogy. That's just, and the other one, was un really unbelievable that it's turning 10 and started this whole thing was the Avengers. Chris Evans, Scarlett Johansson, Mark Ruffalo, Robert Downey Jr. This movie put the MCU on the map. This movie, because we had Kevin Feige, and I, I know I keep reiterating, saying it all the time, but Kevin Feige is one of the smartest studio executives and heads out there. Because he plans five years in advance and he has everything lined up. 
And just when you think you know what's going to happen, he throws you a curveball. So this movie, it was the first time, and everybody was clamoring for this, and it delivered. It was, I think, two hours and 26, 27 minutes. This was the this was so big. This was the first movie ever, and now we've had like five or six since ever. Two hundred million dollars opening weekend. That's incredible. And when you think about, there hadn't been that many Marvel movies up until that point. You had Captain America, the first Avenger. You had an Iron Man movie, a Hulk. But nothing like this. And to see all of them on screen, it just... So the Avengers really, and and that put Josh Whedon... I mean, he had done Buffy and he had done some Angel and some other stuff. But this one really, it solidified things. And solidified the MCU for... A whole decade to come. And that was... I mean, when you're counting down the best Marvel movies, and there's been 27 of them, I always put it in the top five. For me personally, now listen, all film is subjective, and but if I were my five best Marvel movies, The Avengers at five, Guardians of the Galaxy at four, Civil War at three. I would probably put Winter Soldier as my number one. And then Black Panther too. So the Avengers, Guardians, Civil War, Black Panther, and then and then uh Winter Soldier. So that was a really definitive movie. And fast forward. The next Avengers movie, Age of Ultron, opened to, like, I want to say, I don't know the number off the top of my head, it's like $160 million. So that just catapulted everything. So I really, that movie coming up 10 years ago, and we're going to look back in another 10 years, and when this turns 20, and they're going to go, oh my, and it's still going strong today. So, yeah, that's, that's a really... That's hard to believe it came out 10 years ago, but it's it's one of those movies that's it's fun, it's exciting. You get to see all your favorite characters. You get a tease. That really the probably the funniest thing for me is the mid, the after credit scene. It was really the first time we saw Thanos, so you knew he was I mean the big bad going forward, but the Avengers was a really, really good movie. So let's talk about recommendations real quick. Was there anything that you saw on television or a movie or maybe it was a, a musically that you said, wow, I'd really like to have somebody else listen to or see? Well, actually inspired by all this conversation, I actually did a throwback myself and I watched Ana Karenina which was released in 12, uh, 2012. It's a Joe Wright's movie. And that was so good. I mean, I knew the book, of course. Tolstoy is a genius, right? But it's such a well-made movie. The cinematography of it is so on point, it, it blows my mind. Have you seen it? I don't know if you've seen it. No, no, I haven't seen that it one, It is no. so good. It is so good. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of cinematography, and I touched on this on the Oscar podcast I did. One of the biggest things for me is I recently saw Power of the Dog. 
prior to the Oscars. And I gotta say this, cinematography, for me, in that movie, I mean, the movie was slow, and I had already said that, but the cinematography, the shots that he, they were able to, of the mountains, and the, the wide shots, and the landscape, was beautiful. It was gorgeous, and it really played like another character. And if you're able to shoot and film that kind of landscape or whatever it is and do it well, it's a whole, it makes, it turns an all right movie into a great movie. And if it's already a great movie, it turns it into a masterpiece of a movie. And so just a good cinematographer is the difference between night and day. You know, on that road, I feel like people don't understand, but it's a it's a work of art, literally speaking. So, you know, people can actually Google like movie scene versus paintings, for instance. And I do know that Cesar Charloni, who is the, the, the cinematographer responsible for City of God that we've mentioned here, we've talked a lot about his process because he's, he's done other movies such as The Popes, you know, with Anthony Hopkins and Netflix original which was really good, by the way. And his process of creating, you know, or, or imagining the stories, it starts with going to museums and going through, you know, masterpieces. And he's looking at paintings and what they're doing with the lights and the color. So it is almost the work of a painter in a way, you know, that he's going to paint the colors, the scenarios. The, 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 so it's, it, it's incredible. So I think... I think you're right. Cinematography is another character and a very important one. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those it's one of those that is unfortunately it's overlooked. Yes. And I think today in today's in today's films the technical and this this is something we'll touch on tomorrow, but the technical side of filmmaking doesn't get enough love whether it's the sound you're watching a star wars movie and a spear goes by or it's the lightsaber or it's the cinematography as we were just discussing or whether it's the music you know score and Hans Zimmer just won his second oscar the other night i mean he'd been nominated several times yeah. over i'm i'm happy but the reason i bring it up is because in the Academy made the concerted effort to cut out six or seven or eight of the categories. And instead of having the nominees go and then the Oscar winner be, and the Oscar goes too, they just cut right to them getting the award. And sometimes they even cut out full acceptance speeches because they wanted to try and make it shorter. They didn't, by the way. It was three hours and 45 minutes. So, mm. but... It just, it was really, and I was reading, I, I don't know if you, did you happen to read the article I sent you from Hollywood Reporter? No, I haven't had a chance to read okay. it, but it's saved so my time. It was, there's, there's an article in the Hollywood Reporter that was really eye-opening. There was a couple of members of the Academy, one of them actually stepped down yesterday, and there are several more that are considering it, the fact that they did not allow the winners or the nominees well really the winners to present to give their acceptance speeches and they said 
if this is what's going to go moving forward, I don't want to be part of the academy. Anymore. I don't and, know all that. I understand. You know, we cannot... you know, and I know it, it sounds a little extreme, but and, and listen, I can completely understand that. Yeah. Because it's more of a visceral reaction of what happened and everything else, and I get that. But if you're working, toiling over all of this, and then you get nominated for, you know, I mean, how many people actually, unless you're one of the elite of the elite, every single or every other year, get nominated for an Oscar, and then you finally win, you you climb Mount Everest, and then you don't even get gets cut out. I, I, I you know, still getting back to the whole point, the technical side of filmmaking is something that we don't appreciate enough. And I think, I mean, whether it's sound, whether it's lighting, whether it's, you know, visual effects, whether it's whatever it is. And I think we do, actually, you know, David. I think it's actually the opposite. I think we're valuing this more than ever, especially because, you know, like you see euphoria for now. It's it's the cinematography of that series. I'm just shocked. I'm blown away every time that I watch it. I think it's beautiful. Not even talking about the story itself, but the cinematography is so on point too. So I feel like, yeah, the, the quality and the sounds and the tricks and the lighting, I think it's so important today. We talked about movies like, you know, E.T. or all these older ones. Of course, it's not the same technology and equipment, but it's such a huge evolution that today is unacceptable to have something like that. It's unacceptable. People would never even like, what is this? You know, like, and because cameras are so much better, you know, like today we have 8K cameras, right? Like it, it, it's mind blogging the technology we have. So I think people are getting even more demanding. What I do think is that it's pressing professionals to know it all. So you have to know how to direct, but you have also have to understand about lighting. So that's another thing if you want to know for whoever is starting you kind of have to know a little bit of it all like I know that because as a journalist and I used to work for TVs I was a video reporter so I had to do everything by myself I set up the camera I set up the sound I set up the tripod but I was indeed pressured to make everything on point so I have to think about what I'm speaking about my someone who's interviewing but I also have the camera and the lighting and the sound and everything's on me so I do feel like we do understand the value of this and more than ever i guess especially because we've been seeing so much content but the fact that streamings that are doing everything fast still are making really great content in that department i think it's an indication of where we're going and in speaking of streaming coda just one best picture correct yeah guess where that is on it's not in your local theater it's on apple Plus, Apple TV Plus. Yeah. That is all you have to hear. Yeah. And do. Just speaking of technical and a, just won six Oscars. And yeah. we'll, we'll talk about this tomorrow. But so, but Coda's just won Best Picture, like I said, Apple TV. And so that, speaking of streaming, that, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, but I think Rome, when they actually won that, that for me was shocking at the time. Today is not yeah. anymore. But Rome, Netflix original, that that for me was like, wow. 
we're going to yeah. different directions right now but yeah we'll so, talk about that but, tomorrow like i said yeah absolutely so what we're going to do tomorrow is we're going to come back and we're going to do a week in review and boy do we have a lot to talk about oh yeah <laughs> we're going to talk about the Ezra Miller situation we'll talk about Tom Cruise suing Paramount and of course for everybody that saw it live or not we're going to talk about the slap and I just saw something come across the wire that the Academy actually asked Will Smith to be so we'll we'll get into all of that tomorrow so this has been a really fun podcast and so i can't wait to uh do it again all do it all over again tomorrow so for real talks i'm david Steele. i'm eloa and this has been real talks <laughs>